As some of you know, I am kind of, well, I should say I'm indebted to old dead preachers. Um, I think they sometimes have a lot more to offer us than, than a lot of the new stuff. And, and I don't say that just to sound smarter. I just say that because that's, that's truly how I feel. And, and just in God's providence this morning before our worship service, I happened to just be, uh, happened across an old sermon from a Puritan minister by the name of John Flavel, and he was preaching out of, uh, the, out of Corinthians where Paul is uh, instructing us upon the Lord's Supper. And the whole crux of the sermon was about this concept of do this in remembrance of me. You see, we have the words of Jesus on the front of the table there. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I have uh, friends that are not Reformed Protestant Christians. They are of an Orthodox tradition or a Roman Catholic tradition, and they say that, you know, we just go too far with this whole remembrance thing. That by saying we're doing this in remembrance, we're, we're really weakening the, the meaning of the supper, and that's, that's not true at all. I, I think every single person in this room who partook of the Lord's Supper is aware that this was more than just a mere remembering of intellectual facts. We understand that we are indwelt with the Spirit of God, and and we are truly partaking in communion with Him. And and so, just on that thought of remembrance, the importance of of putting your your thoughts upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to read to you this this passage from Flavel uh, talking about that. Not intending to spend all my time here, but I thought it would be appropriate to share. Flavel says, A man would think that such a Christ should never be one whole hour together out of his people's thoughts and affections, that wherever they go, they should carry him up and down with them in their thoughts, desires, and delights, that they should let their thoughts work towards Christ as the longing thoughts of her that is with child do work after that she longs for, that they should lie down with Christ in their thoughts at night, and when they awake, be still with Him, that their very dreams in the night should be sweet visions of Christ, and all their words savor of Christ. And so we're, of course, continuing our expositional series through the book of First Peter. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the first epistle of Peter, First Peter chapter 2. And I want to invite you to stand, if, if you are able, for the reading of the Word of God. We read here in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Won't you join me in prayer? Father God, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father God, we just thank you for every good and spiritual blessing which you have, in your grace and in your mercy, which we do not deserve, but you have chosen to show us, that you have chosen to give us. You've looked upon a sinful man like myself, dear God, and you have shown me mercy. You've shown me grace. Father God, I know where I've gone astray in my life. I know how I've I've broken your law. And yet, dear Lord, you have redeemed me from my sin. You've united me with the death and resurrection in Christ that I might live unto your glory, dear God. And and I trust in my heart and soul that that testimony, that experience is true of, of many people in this room and people who are listening to the live stream or podcast online. Dear God, we just thank you for such a blessed day. We thank you for the Lord's day. We thank you for the opportunity and the freedom to gather as God's saints, to gather as the people of God for the preaching of the Word of God, for fellowship, for brotherly love and affection, dear Lord. We thank you. We thank you for this gift. Father God, I just pray that that your name would be glorified in the service. I pray that your Word would be honored in the service. I pray that your Word would be faithfully proclaimed and preached so that your people whom you love and who love you would be able to understand your word, that they would be able to take it to heart, dear God, that they would be able to live anew in light of your divine and glorious truth. Father God, we just thank you for such a blessing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus Christ who died for my sins and for many others as well, once said that those who follow him must take up their cross and deny themselves. Now, those who push the teaching that the Christian life is meant to be an easy life, either they haven't been reading their Bibles enough or they have and they simply do not care what the Bible says. For those of you who take notes, which I would encourage you to do if, if that's the kind of person you are. The title of tonight's message is Suffering, Submission, and the Christian. Now, a lot of our uh, popular teaching in the church these days wouldn't want to put those three words together in a title because that would not attract a lot of book sales. That would not attract a lot of uh, people coming in off the street. But the reality is, is those three words, suffering, submission, and the Christian, that they go together. And we need to understand how they go together so that we can live godly lives. And that is, that is of course, the goal of this preaching. It's not only that we would understand the Word of God, but that the Word of God would be revealed and impressed upon our hearts. That our, our affections, that our worldview would be changed according to the Scripture. That we would be less and less like the earth, less and less like America, less and less like our culture, and more and more like the Bible, more and more like how Jesus Christ would want us to be. 
And so Peter, in this portion of his letter, addresses really the counterculture character of the Christian. And I mean that in a particular sense, that the character, the attitude, the mindset of the Christian man or woman is vastly distinct from the common perspectives of the people of the world. And I think especially our culture today. Now, what is more unpopular in the minds of many Westerners, particularly Americans, than the word submission? To the postmodern worldview, the word just drips with a dark and dreary connotation. Submission is, is generally viewed as a bad thing, as an evil thing, characteristic of a weak person. We live amongst a culture that has a worldview that religiously aims to promote the self-autonomy of every individual. And that's, that's truly the best way to put it. Individualistic is an accurate way to describe the characteristic that is so valued in our culture. Now, there is obviously an appropriate and Christian way to understand uh, some of this philosophy, uh, to be able to stand up for what is right, no matter what the culture around you is telling you, is, is indeed a, a good thing, a godly thing. And as a matter of fact, I believe that that will, in a sense, be partly addressed in this passage of Scripture. You know, there is a reason why we as Christians celebrate men like Athanasius, Martin Luther, Tyndale, the, the, these, these men in church history who were able to stand alone on important key truths, key doctrines of the faith amidst persecution. We have the saying, Athanasius contra mundum, that is, Athanasius against the world. That, that is a remembered statement because Christians, from a biblical worldview, have historically looked upon a man like Athanasius, looked at his brave stance against the Arians, people who denied the deity of Christ, who denied that Jesus was God, um, and we, we've looked at Athanasius' brave stance against the Arians as a good thing, as a positive thing. Even though what he was doing was very unpopular in the, the day and age in which he lived. But this is not the type of individual, individuality that I'm really addressing uh, that is celebrated by our postmodern culture. Because when you have men like Athanasius, Tyndale, Martin Luther, these were men who were not in the most part, or at least from how we remember them, they were not seeking to glorify themselves. They were not standing up for themselves necessarily, but rather they were chiefly standing up in defense of truths that were greater than their own lives, that are still greater than our lives. Uh, you know, John the Baptist in the New Testament famously publicly opposed the immorality of King Herod. And what did Jesus say of John but that, among those born of women, none is greater than he. But our postmodern culture is not at all concerned with transcendent truths which pertain to the Word of God. Rather, the people in our day want to throw off anything, anyone, any standard of truth which would attempt to inhibit them from achieving their, and this is really the key thing, their desires. Okay, not the truth. That is, that's the Word of God that, that is binding, that pertains to us all, but rather what I want to do is, is the goal that many people are fighting for. 
Now, self-autonomy is the golden calf of the liberal and progressive mindset, which is why the word submission just sounds so evil, just sounds so nasty to so many people in our day. Now, even conservative people who would look at what some of the crazy stuff that is going on in, on the rat, radical left, and they would rightly say, this is, this is nuts, this is crazy. Yet many of these same people, even many people who call themselves Christians, still nevertheless have an unbiblical view of the word submission and how to apply that in our lives. Submission, according to the teaching of the New Testament, is not only not a bad thing, but is a positively good and gracious thing. Submission is a virtue which the Scriptures honor. Submission is a virtue which is characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who is the only man to have ever lived a perfect life. And so in this portion of his epistle, Peter will admonish us towards the precious and holy virtue of submission. In verses 13 and 17, which Brother John covered last week, we are told to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution and to honor the emperor or the king. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Christian wives will be told to be subject to your own husbands. And this being subject to one's own husbands is characterized with respectful and pure conduct. Now, right away, immediately as, as I say those two things, that we ought to be subject to governing authorities, that wives ought to be subject to their own husbands, probably upset someone. I, I, I probably upset someone in here or someone listening online, and, and really, I can't apologize for that. Because hopefully, if you're a Christian, and you hear truth from the Word of God, which might sound upsetting, might sound conflicting, you would immediately realize, oh, I need, I need to work on something in my own heart. I, I have an, an unbiblical view on, on this particular area, this particular aspect of my life. And, and if you're a Christian, what you want to do is you want to pray that by the grace of God, your heart would be uh, changed, that your heart would be open to desire to not only better understand the biblical worldview, but to live it out for the glory of God. Now, the verses that we are going to be focusing on tonight are going to be addressed to servants, that they ought to be subject to their masters. And not only to be subject to their masters, but to be willing to suffer unjustly. And Peter is also going to say that suffering unjustly is a good and noble thing. And the brilliant thing Peter will do here in this section to demonstrate the importance of this biblical mindset of willful submission and suffering unjustly, is he is going to take these two attributes, these two uh, traits, and he is going to connect them to the character of our Lord Jesus Christ and how Jesus himself demonstrates these things in his own life. So it is my honest and sincere prayer that the Lord God, the Holy Spirit, would open up our ears and our hearts to accept this divine and glorious biblical truth and would give us all, all of us who have died to sin and been born again to righteousness, a desire to live it out unto the glory of God, our great and majestic God, who is Lord over all authorities and who will all have to submit to in the end. And so we read in verse 18, 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, in the first place, as already iterated, we see that Peter is addressing servants. The actual Greek word is not the more common doulos, which is often used of slave or servants, but we are actually having the word eukates being employed. The terms are, are obviously similar, but the word Peter is using here more specifically addresses the type of servant that would basically be a house servant, that would live in the same house as their master. Now, household servants indeed had more privileges than field slaves, more privileges than those slaves who would work in the mines. And uh, in the ancient world, this particular type of servitude, uh, it's hard for us to think about, but it's not the same thing. It's not comparable to the type of slavery experienced in America up until the 19th century. For instance, the particular type of servant Peter is addressing here uh, could potentially range from, yes, the lowliest, uh, most neglected and, and mistreated laborer, but also to the most skilled craftsman in a profession. As a matter of fact, some of these servants, for instance, actually got paid for their labor. They had the ability to save up and buy their freedom. And some of these servants had servants of their own. Now, don't get me wrong, the same teaching here in Peter is also applied to uh, doulos, the regular type of slave that you think of, the more oppressed type of slave. But I just want to be accurate to the text, and I have a reason for that. Uh, as I bring this stuff up, because the type of household servant Peter is addressing right here could in a lot of ways be compared to a modern-day employee of, of a company, although the person Peter is talking to would still technically be considered uh, properly property legally. Now, why am I giving you all this information? Well, because understanding this makes the application of the text broader. Because the truths that Peter is speaking in this passage, while they could be applied to a slave in ancient days, they could be applied to a household servant in ancient days, but they could most certainly be applied to any one of us who are alive today, any employee at a, at a company in modern times. The point of the matter is, wherever you are, whoever you are, you are called to live a godly life with godly conduct. And so Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, now right off the bat, this is where someone will take this verse and they will say, see, the Bible supports slavery. And such an assertion just completely misses the point of the text because Peter is not, nor, neither is Paul in his letters, addressing the institution of slavery or the institution of servanthood, to be more accurate with this particular text. Uh, you know, Peter is not saying that the institution of slavery is a good and righteous thing. And the, uh, the immediate response to that is, well, he's also not saying that slavery is wrong. He's, uh, in the New Testament, slaves are told to be obedient, servants are told to be obedient. And to the person who says that, you know, the Bible never says slavery is wrong or these types of things, you're absolutely right, the Bible never says that. And this is really an important conversation. 
because many people today want to claim that the New Testament is evil because it does not explicitly address the institution of slavery or servanthood is wrong, even when the New Testament authors themselves are addressing slaves, servants, and their masters. But what we need to realize, and, and really I hope you can see the point that I'm making here, I think this is important, Peter and the New Testament authors were not concerned with social or political reform, but they were concerned with spiritual reform. You see, Peter does not address the institution of slavery, not because he was afraid to do so or he didn't want to stir up controversy. I mean, we're talking about the Apostle Peter here or or anything like that. The reason that Peter doesn't address the institution of slavery or the institution of servanthood as a whole is because that's not his focus. His focus is upon the hearts of the individuals involved. The fact that Peter addresses servants in his letter written to the elect exiles means necessarily that Peter viewed these servants and other slaves not as an other group, not as second-class or lower-class citizens, but rather he viewed these individuals as brothers in Christ. And that's the beautiful thing. And so the amazing thing that we read then is their freedom is not Peter's concern nor his focus. His focus is upon their spiritual well-being. He's focused upon their walk with God. And this is is what is so enriching about the New Testament's teaching on this subject. Because what Christians are supposed to realize is that our spiritual well-being, our spiritual maturity, our relationship with Jesus is of a far greater caliber and degree of importance than our standing in the world. For what does it profit a man man to gain the world should he lose his soul? And so when Peter addresses servants here, or when Paul addresses slaves, the concern is not that they should be set free, but that they themselves right where they are at, right where God has called them to be, should live godly lives in Christ Jesus. And just because I think that this understanding is so important, I want to give you one other biblical illustration before we move on. One of the shortest and yet most insightful books in the entire Bible is Paul's letter to Philemon. Now, Philemon was a wealthy man, and as wealthy men in ancient times tended to do, he was a slaveholder. He was a slaveholding man. And well, in a miraculous and providential turn of events, Philemon hears the gospel and he is saved, presumably under Paul's ministry. And so Philemon, he becomes a Christian. Well, at some point along the way, one of his slaves, Onesimus, flees from Philemon and he makes his way to Rome. Well, guess who happens to be in prison in Rome at this time? The Apostle Paul. Well, Onesimus at some point himself hears the gospel and is saved. And Paul even refers to him as a a spiritual child. Well, eventually what Paul realizes in ministering to the man is that his new brother in the faith, Onesimus, 
was the bondservant, was the slave of Philemon, someone who Paul already knew. And so Paul looks at the situation. He has these two brothers in Christ. He has the slaveholder and he has the slave. And so he realizes now what he is to do. What, what is the Christian to do when you have a Christian slaveholder and a Christian slave? Philemon, the slaveholder, would undoubtedly have had great respect for the Apostle Paul and would likely have followed Paul's advice on a number of things. One could make the argument that if Paul were to write to Philemon requesting to have the slave set free, that Philemon may have done so. That's not what Paul does. Because that's not Paul's concern in the matter. Paul sees this and he realizes the wonderful opportunity to have the relationship of these two men be restored. And that this would be a great testament to the power of the Gospel. And so what does Paul do? He sends Onesimus back, back to his slave master. And here's where people want to say, look, the Bible supports slavery. And I just want to say, you are missing the point if that's what you're taking away from this. Read Paul's letter to Philemon. What does he say in verses 15 and 16? He says, For this, perhaps, is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. So the status of bondservant is not changing. But the relationship between the two individuals is. He says, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This, this, this is so important. This means so much to us. You see, Paul was not concerned with the social status, the political standing of these two men. He was concerned with what goes on in here. He was concerned with their spiritual well-being. And he understood that if his brother Onesimus was to live a God-honoring life, that it would mean submitting to Philemon's authority. That he would go back to him. And he is confident that Philemon will not just receive him as a servant, but as a brother. And why does Paul have this confidence? The power of the gospel, what was accomplished on that cross, is where Paul is resting his hope in the matter of these two individuals. This is the beautiful thing that the New Testament does. It shows us that our status here on earth, which is a temporary thing, pales in comparison to our relationship with Jesus. We should want to seek to honor God above all things. And now someone might say, well, Logan, that's, that's well and good for Philemon and Onesimus. If you know, Philemon's a Christian, Onesimus is a Christian, and they're, they're going to the same worship services together, they're singing the same hymns, they're listening to the same word being preached and all that, then, then obviously you know, Philemon is going to treat Onesimus fairly and justly. But what about those masters, those slave masters, those masters of servants who were not so kind. Listen to hear what Peter says in verse 18. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. 
Now here is where the Word of God really begins to challenge our flesh. Okay, it's, it's, it's not the most difficult thing in the world to ask someone to be respectful and honor someone who is respectful to them. Put that in the first person. It's not, not, not difficult for me to give honor and respect to someone who gives that to me. And that probably relates to that yourself. But to show respect to, to honor, to submit to someone who treats you unjustly, that just, that just goes against my flesh's nature. That just goes against human nature at its core. Yet, this is the mindset that Peter wants the Christian to have. So in verse 19 we read, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now here is a statement which cannot be understood and cannot be embraced by the natural man. The glorious grace and virtue communicated in this verse can only be exercised and experienced by a Christian. For who can view suffering unjustly as a gracious thing other than one who is mindful of God, to use Peter's language? Now, to be mindful of God in this context means to be hyper-conscious and trustingly aware of the reality of God in all things. This means to be mindful, aware of, conscious of, thinking about God's presence, God's goodness, to be mindful of what God has done for you, to be mindful of God's commandments, to be mindful of God's promises, to be mindful of God, all things which pertain to God, all things that God has done, and in all things being so mindful. So the one to whom it is a gracious thing to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly is the one who is consciously aware of the reality of God as they are enduring the sorrows so that they can persevere in their suffering as they are doing so to give honor and glory to God in their lives and not seeking to gratify or to satisfy their own desires. They are suffering unjustly. The one who is treating them this way ought not to be doing so. But nevertheless, the godly servant endures sorrows, suffers great afflictions, all unjustly, all undeservingly, as his relationship with God, his walk with the Lord Jesus Christ is more precious and more important to him than even his own comfort. For he would rather endure the sorrow, he'd rather endure the affliction, endure the suffering, than to fire back a sinful word and thus compromise the very gospel which has saved him. He would rather submit. He would rather be tortured. He would rather be persecuted than to grieve the Holy Spirit that indwells him. For this to be a gracious thing means that it is a thing which God favors and God approves of. The Lord God is delighted when his children are able to treasure him and cherish him above earthly respect and above earthly vindication above earthly comfort, above earthly reward, and above earthly justice. God is pleased to see His children 
rejoicing in him as they suffer unjustly. And then look at this comparison that Peter makes in, in verse 20. We read, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For what credit? How could it be favorable? How could it be a gracious thing? How could it be a good thing in the sight of the Lord for one to endure, persevere suffering if really the suffering that they're enduring is just justice? They're getting what they deserve. They have sinned and they are getting beaten for it. There's nothing, nothing noble about that. There's nothing honorable in that. But what Peter says is, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, it's very important that Peter gives us this distinction because this will nuance what it means to be subject to your master or to the governing authorities or a wife to her husband or any of these relationships where submission is involved. Because, and this is the thing we only submit to and we only obey men as far as we can do so without violating the law of God, without violating our conscience before God. Think about it. Peter is talking about suffering for doing good, and he says to be subject to your masters. Now, think about that for a moment. If what you're doing is going to be something which leads to your master beating you, then it's very obvious that you're doing something which is not what your master wants you to do. And yet, we are called to do good things. For it is a gracious thing in God's sight to do good things and get beaten for it. So, so hold on a second. We're told to submit on the one hand, yet we're told that it is a gracious thing in the sight of God to suffer, to be beaten for doing good. So submission clearly does not mean that we stop doing the good things we get beaten for. Submission clearly does not mean that we stop obeying God in all things, that we stop honoring God in what we do. That clearly cannot be the understanding, for it would contradict what Peter is saying here. And I don't think the Apostle, Paul inspired by, or Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to be so stupid as to contradict himself within a few sentences. And so... What we got to do is we got to understand this. And what I often tell my students in, in Bible study on Sunday mornings is what we need to do with Scripture is we need to harmonize it. Okay, we need to harmonize these twin truths by understanding that in all of our relationships, our relationship with God is the highest and takes the most precedence. Submission to men does not mean that we violate our Christian convictions. If God wants me to do something that my master does not want me to do, I have to obey God. And if my master wants me to do something which God does not want me to do, I have to obey God. If my boss tells me that, that I can't partake of the Lord's Supper, or that I can't, or that I have to work on the Lord's Day, or, or some other thing, it is my duty to lovingly, with grace, with honor, with respect, look at him and say, Sir, my God commands me to assemble in fellowship with his saints on the Lord's Day I, I, and partake of the Lord's Supper and worship in a community setting. Uh, sir, I can't do this. 
I, I can't violate my own personal walk with the Lord for the spiritual edification. My, my own growth and Christian maturity is more important than that paycheck. Now that's very different than if Monday morning I come in to work and my boss tells me, hey, instead of this other thing, I want you to sweep, and he hands me a broom. It is obviously my responsibility before God to honor and glorify God because my relationship with God is, is what's most important there. It is my responsibility before God to honor God by submitting to my boss's authority and saying, yes, sir, right away. Now, suppose my boss wants to penalize me or penalize me simply because he does not like the fact that I am a Christian, that I, I have a worldview that contradicts his, I partake in practices which are confusing to him, I, 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 I worship a God that he doesn't understand or all these different things, and should punishment come my way or should punishment come your way, your responsibility, being mindful of God, is to allow yourself, for me to allow myself to suffer without retaliating, without making threats, without sinning, but to endure sorrow, even though I know that I am suffering for doing that which is good. So how do you take all these things? How do you evaluate these things and apply them in your own life? Well, what you must do is you must evaluate every interaction, every, every, every moment, all right? Every moment is a sacred and important thing. Every millisecond of our lives, we are Christians. Nothing, and nothing is unimportant. Nothing doesn't matter. Every single moment, every single instance, and every single relationship we have, we must evaluate what's going on. We must be sober-minded as we are called to. We must look at the situation and identify how do I most honor God in this? How do I most glorify God in this? Now, in relationships where there's an authority figure like the government or like the boss or the wife and her husband, in any circumstance where we read in the Bible that one party ought to submit to the other party, we understand clearly that the default position for the Christian is submission, even to a crooked master. But we do not do this when submitting to said master, submitting to said authority figure, would compromise our walk with God. When these twin truths are understood and applied in our own lives, we are showing that our relationship with the Lord God trumps all of our relationships with men. Now, the illustration that I just gave between a modern-day employer and an employee is that obviously was a very tame illustration compared to the illustration that Peter's about to give. And so, really what we must understand, and, and in all honesty, this is the reason why we chose to do the book of First Peter here on Sunday nights. Because the reality is we live in an ever-increasing anti-Christian culture. You all know what I'm talking about. You've all seen that. And Peter, what he addresses in his first epistle, is so applicable to 2023. It's applicable throughout all times, but, but I think it deserves our attention in light of what's going on in our world today. What Peter's addressing here, and what he will continue to do so throughout his letter, is the concept of suffering for righteousness' sake. 
This is something we need to be prepared to do. Getting fired from a job is very different than being thrown in prison. And the persecution that we are suffering now as Christians in America is, is, is really very light. So much so that to use the word persecution is, is almost like a lie. Um, this week, the New Harvest Ministries NEO Facebook page was flagged for hate speech. They didn't tell us why. They didn't give us any information. You know, They didn't point out anything specific that John or I said that violated their terms of hate speech. They just said that we committed hate speech. Who knew? And you know, there, there was a chance that they might take the Facebook page down as a result of this. Now, so far they have not done that, but that doesn't mean that it won't happen in the future. Right? It doesn't mean that the only time we will be able to hear preaching what we're, like what we're doing tonight is by gathering together in person. If the powers that be want to shut us off, they will find a way. And so it doesn't mean that at some point we won't be taken off Facebook or YouTube or the other platforms. But even if this were to happen, if our Facebook page were to get taken down tonight in the middle of this live stream, that would not even begin to compare with some of the persecution that men of the past have faced. A guy like John Bunyan, a, a particular Baptist Puritan minister in the 17th century who spent over a decade in prison, for preaching without official rights from the king. And when he was told that, they, they made him an offer, they made him a proposition. They said, John, if you'll just stop preaching, you can walk free today. And what did old Bunyan reply with? He said, if I am freed today, I will preach tomorrow. I This was a, a personal story. I will never forget the feeling that I felt when I, I was standing in a museum in Washington, D.C., and I was looking at an actual edition of William Tyndale's English New Testament that was printed in 1536. Now, 1536 was the year that William Tyndale was killed, was martyred for producing the very English New Testament that I was looking at. The countless men who have given their freedoms, who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel, that, that just puts things in a whole new perspective. That, I'm sorry, but that just does something to me, it, it, and I'm sure it does for you. The P Peter, the one who wrote this letter, the one who walked with Jesus, stood with Jesus on the water, the one who wrote the letter we are reading tonight, himself was crucified on an upside-down cross, saying that he wanted to be crucified in such a way because he don't think he deserved to be killed in the same way that his precious Savior, Jesus Christ, was. All for preaching the truth. All for being passionate for the Gospel. All for being on fire for Jesus Christ. Think about the countless men and women in the Middle East today who are suffering and giving their lives for their faith. We, we have it really easy here. Doesn't mean it's always going to stay this way. So all this, thinking about the men in the Middle East, thinking about Tyndale and, and, and Bunyan and Wycliffe and, and the Apostle Peter himself, that makes the suffering and submission that I have to do seem very, very small. But to be honest, 
And I'm not a prophet, but I expect that within my lifetime, those of us who are still around, Christian, you and I, might have to suffer greatly for our faith. I, I, I really believe that. And God is so gracious. God is so loving. God is so merciful. And so think about this. Right now, God is allowing us to study His Word and learn the principles of suffering on a very small scale. It's almost like getting flagged on Facebook for hate speech. That's like less than training wheels. What it does is it, is it makes me look at my Bible. It makes me look to my Lord God for, for wisdom and guidance in this issue so that we can read First Peter, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God, as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoken to us, we can read these divine biblical principles that were true in the first century, that were true in the 17th century, and which are true today, and we can understand this important doctrine of suffering unjustly, which is a discipline which we will all need to learn. Now, it is not accidental that Christians have historically suffered unjustly because servant not above his master. And though we all, to some capacity, have masters uh, here on earth we are to honor and obey, there is one supreme master we are to follow with all of our beings and to whom all masters will have to bow the knee, and that man's name is Jesus Christ. And so to illustrate the attitude that we are to have of being subject to our masters and being willing to suffer unjustly for doing good, Peter shows us how Jesus Christ himself, to a great extent, displayed these same characteristics in his own life. But not only that, we will see what great blessing came about as a result of Christ's suffering. And so look at verse 21, we read, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Think about that phrase there. For to this you have been called. Now, remember again to whom it is Peter is writing. He's writing to the elect exiles. He is writing to those people whom God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 9. And so here we see that the very same people who are called to spiritual life, called to salvation, are also called by God to suffer. We see this very same thing in Philippians chapter 2, or Philippians chapter 1, rather. Uh, Paul writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. You see, the same people that are given the gift of faith are also given the gift of suffering for that faith. And this is a marvelous thing. Now, this right here shows us how unattractive the Christian faith truly is to the unregenerate soul. Because no one in their flesh wants to suffer. But Peter here views suffering as a gracious thing. He says it is what we have been called to do. And he roots it. And he connects it to the one who is greater than us, saying, for to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, our willingness to suffer for doing good, to suffer for righteousness' sake, to suffer for Christ's sake, should come from the fact that Christ himself suffered for us. Peter says that when he was doing this, he was leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. The Bible says we ought to be imitators of Christ, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Christ is not only our Lord and Savior, but his life is the model by which we should base how we live our own lives. As a matter of fact, the word example here is translated from the Greek hypogrammas, which is literally used of children tracing over the letters of the alphabet so that they can learn to write them correctly. And I think that's just a brilliant illustration that Peter gives us here. Christ is our pattern. Christ is our model uh, by which we are to copy, who which we are to copy with our own lives. Well, our pattern of conduct, our example, was a man who suffered, a man who was greatly afflicted for a great cause. Are not we too then to be willing to suffer for his great cause? Verse 22 we read concerning Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter here speaks of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only man of whom it can be said, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, Peter here, and this is, is so, God is so purposeful and so providential. I did not, when I was preparing my, my sermon manuscript, I did not know um, what Brother John, what he was planning on doing for the scripture reading for the Lord's Supper. And so, and neither did he necessarily know what I was doing to a degree. But Peter, he's going to expound on Christ's exemplary suffering, and he is going to do so by drawing from Scripture, drawing from that ever most important passage which Brother John just read to us as we began this worship service in Isaiah 53, a passage which explains in explicit detail what it is Jesus is going to. And it was written about 700 years before Christ was ever born. It is the prophecy of the suffering servant. I like what John said, the, the fifth gospel. The gospel according to Isaiah, you could put it. Now there is great theological significance that uh, is going to be elaborated upon as we go through these verses that Peter is referencing. And so we're just going to kind of take things step by step here and listen to this from Isaiah 53. This is a section which Peter quotes. He says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is brought before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. You see, all throughout the great and tragic suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ that he experienced, he opened not his mouth. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he was stricken. Not only was he stricken, but he was stricken not for his own transgression, for this was the sinless Son of God we are talking about. He endured the beating and the flogging and the affliction and the suffering and the oppression and the judgment. And he was stricken not for his own transgression, but for the transgression of another people. And yet, no deceit was found in his mouth. He committed no sin, not even with his own mouth. In verse 23 here in 1 Peter chapter 2, we read, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here, Jesus' sinlessness amidst suffering is expounded even more. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You see, Jesus was presented with the very same things which tempt us to sin, and yet he committed no sin. Now, it is so easy to let fleshly desire take over when people speak wrongly of you when people speak harshly of you when they ought not to. And it's so easy when that comes to involuntarily as insults are being thrown our way to just shout something back that is just as sinful, if not more sinful. But see, that kind of behavior is wrong for the Christian. Our pattern, our model, whose life we are to trace, like the kid learning the alphabet, all right? Our example is Jesus Christ. And when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. You see, our example, who suffered greatly, who was afflicted tremendously, did not threaten back to those who persecuted Him, and, and once again, what, what, a, what an incredible thing to read. How great is the temptation to retaliate and threaten those who treat us wrongly. But this is not how the Christian ought to behave. We are called to suffer. It is a gracious thing. It is a noble thing, a favorable thing in the sight of God when we suffer unjustly for doing that which is good. And why? This is how the one we follow, Jesus Christ Himself, daily His Father's delights, behaved and lived. But at least we think that Peter is admonishing us towards some sort of vain stoicism where when trials come, we just sort of keep a stiff upper lip and we, you know, in our own power, we stand strong, we show no emotion or no thought as what we're doing, but rather, on the contrary, Peter is exhorting us not to disassociate ourselves from emotion, not to keep the stiff upper lip, not to be the stoic, but Peter exhorts us to hold on to a peculiar and glorious hope 
while we endure our sorrows and sufferings. For read what he writes about our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now there are two wonderful observations that we need to make on this text. For one, Peter is obviously referring to God the Father in this place. Now, to entrust oneself to another in this context is to hand yourself over to someone else to care for and protect you. Our Lord Jesus Christ chose to, rather than reviling or threatening his tormentors, his persecutors, what he chooses to do in this situation is to continue to trust that all that was happening, all that had happened and all that would happen, was going to be according to God's sovereign plan. And that God was going to do right in the situation. For he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now what an example Christ leaves for us. That we too, when the affliction comes, when the suffering comes, when the persecution comes, what did Jesus do? All right? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He handed himself over to the one who he knew would provide for, would protect and care for him. Notice the second thing. The way that God the Father is described in this place. Peter particularly chooses to refer to him as him who judges justly. Now, he could have very easily said his father or his God or something along those lines, but he chooses to specifically address him as him who judges justly. Now, there is undoubtedly great significance in this thing. Because what is specifically being illustrated is that as Jesus was suffering unjustly, having never once committed sin and only ever doing that which was right, he was hanging on to the promises of God, trusting that the judge of all the earth would do right, that he would be vindicated in the life to come, that the sins of all of his accusers, guess what? He's entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, and the judge of all the earth will do right with their sins, just as he does right with everyone's sins. One way or another, the sins of his accusers were going to be justly dealt with by God who judges justly and impartially. And this is just exactly the way we ought to think. We ought not to put our hopes and trusts in this life here, in physical things and material things and earthly circumstances. We are to trust in the life to come. What was that song we sang? A few more weary days and then I'll fly away. The things of this world ought not please us. We ought not be aroused with wants to have all we crave in the here and the now. But we ought to be, as Christian people, Christian men and women, born again, born from above, and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, we ought to be inflamed with an affection and desire that God would indeed be glorified in our lives, including in our sufferings, that we might be vindicated in the life to come. This is a glorious picture which the Apostle Peter paints for our hearts and minds here to behold. And just to drive this point home even further, 
Peter is now going to tell us some of the great and wonderful blessings accomplished by Christ's suffering. But also that the very grounds and foundation of our faith, the very grounds and foundation of our salvation, the very founds and foundation of our spiritual life is in a man who suffered unjustly for us, thus putting all things in a great perspective. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Once again, Peter is making allusions to that great and wonderful passage in Isaiah 53, which says that Christ bore our iniquities and that by His wounds we are healed. This is that great and wonderful doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement where Christ takes upon Himself the wrath of the Father, bears the punishment for our sins in our stead, in our place, so that we might be united with Him in His death and united with Him in His resurrection that we are raised to spiritual life. God forgives us of all of our sins, having punished them in Jesus' body on the cross. We are born again, born from above, to walk in newness of life, mediated to us by means of our faith in the one He sent to suffer and die on that cross in our stead. This is the message of the Gospel. This is glorious Christian truth. And Peter says, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, contained within the spiritual blessings that we receive in salvation is the ability to overcome sin and live righteous and holy lives. For instance, think about the context here, the spiritual ability to suffer unjustly, being mindful of God. For this is not something that comes to the natural man. This is not something that comes to the man who is still in his flesh. All right, For what natural man can rejoice in suffering unjustly? He can't. Okay? My flesh couldn't do that. I need the grace of God in order to do that. You need the grace of God in order to do that. That's why Peter's telling us here. He's saying, look to your example. Look to the cross. Look to the suffering servant spoken about by the prophets who suffered unjustly, who bore your iniquities, bore your sins on the cross. You've been healed by his wounds that you might be born again to live to righteousness. That is what's going on here. You see, the great purpose that was accomplished by means of Christ's sufferings. And, and that this is the very bedrock and foundation of our entire faith. You know, I, I would not be able to stand here today as a born-again Christian with a clear conscience whose sins have all been washed away, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and whose soul has been redeemed. All right, I would not be able to stand here as the man that I am with a hope eternal hope in the life to come, were it not for Christ having bore my sins in His body on the cross and having been healed by His wounds. Nothing of my own doing to boast of, but all to give Him glory for. This is what the death of Jesus Christ accomplishes. And if, if He were to do this for us, 
We should embrace the opportunity to suffer for His name's sake. We should embrace the opportunity to have the men of this world call us hateful, flag us for hate speech, take away our jobs, throw us in prison, take away our freedoms, take away our possessions. We should rush that God would so look upon us as deserving to suffer for His cause. There is a reason why many Christians, such as myself, wear an ancient torture device around our necks, a cross, as a symbol of our faith. Because the very basis of who I am as a person, as an individual, the very grounds of my spiritual life are in the fact that 2,000 years ago, a perfectly righteous man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, suffered unjustly on this ancient torture device for my sins, for the sins of all of his people. That ought to influence how we face suffering. Now, I'm not talking about you know, that we should all just develop a martyr complex and, and go out there and just try to stir people up just for the sake of it. That's, that's just unwise. That's not what I'm talking about. And, and I trust that you understand that. But, but really, there, there is something to be learned here. That we ought to be, we ought to look at suffering. We ought to look at submission in, in total new light. Thinking about what Christ has done for us. Thinking about the admonitions of the Apostle Peter here. So verse 25, we read, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Once again, another allusion to Isaiah 53, which says, All we like sheep have gone astray. You see, what I'm talking about here with what Christ does for us on the cross, I, I, I can't stress this enough, but this is, is mercy. This is grace. This is un deserving. We, we're sheep that have gone astray from our shepherd. Not only have we gone astray, we've blasphemed him. We've done wicked things in his sight. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's, that's, that's all encompassing. There's, there's not a one of you saints out there that can say, not me. You guys over there, that whole sin thing, that's cute what you're dealing with, but that's, that's not me all-encompassing. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. There is no one who can answer back to God and say that they are innocent. We are all guilty. What does Christ do for us in His suffering? Is he, what He does is He looks upon sinful creatures and He unites us back together with the very one whom we have sinned against, God, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, that we might live for Him, and in this context, suffer for Him and suffer unto His glory. That's what this whole thing's about. That's what this whole thing's about. Redemption, reconciliation. I think we can easily see a picture of that when we were talking earlier about Philemon and Onesimus. All right, the slave, he does something wrong. Against his master, he, he goes astray from his shepherd. And what is the message of the gospel? What does the gospel do in the situation? It looks at the one who has sinned, 
looks at the one who has done wrong and unites him back together with the very one that he has sinned against. And I can't tell you how thankful I am for that. And so with this, we will sort of begin to conclude tonight's message. Spiritual life begins with he who suffered unjustly for us. That, that's a big deal. Will we not then be willing to do the same for Him? If He suffered death to redeem us, might not we suffer to bring Him honor and glory? Now once again, I'm not talking about developing a martyr complex, but what I'm saying is how could we neglect the opportunities presented to us in our lives to be subject to our masters, to suffer unjustly for doing good. Opportunities which will afford us the chance to do that which is pleasing in God's sight when He has so lovingly lavished an infinite number of spiritual blessings upon us all. May we seek in every interaction that we have in our lives to strive to honor God and bring Him glory in every bit of our conduct, in every one of our relationships, And let us pray that God would give us the grace necessary to be willing to suffer for such a great and noble cause. Let us endure sorrow on His behalf. Let us endure affliction on His behalf. Let us be beaten on His behalf. Let us be slandered on His behalf. Let us be imprisoned on His behalf. Let us be killed for Christ's sake. For we can do so, entrusting ourselves to the loving, tender care and protection of Him who judges justly. To God be all the glory forever and ever. And I want you to join me in prayer. Father God, Father, we come before You in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who has bled and died for us on the cross, whose death and and, and Gospel message that we proclaim as we partake of, of Your table of the Lord's Supper, dear God, Father, we just pray that these realities would be renewed in our hearts, that they would uh, live in our affections. Okay, dear God? I pray that when we leave this place of worship tonight, we would leave as people with a greater desire, a greater drive, a greater um, ambition and passion to live God-honoring lives. In Jesus' name that I pray, amen.